Please turn to Matthew 21 for the scripture reading. This is the triumphal entry and where we get the story of Palm Sunday. Jerusalem was an exciting place at this time of the year. Passover was one of those great pilgrimage festivals when people came from all over into Jerusalem. (laughs) Jerusalem had, estimates are that Jerusalem had a population of maybe 40,000, a little bit smaller maybe than Harrisonburg now, Uh, but during a time of festival, of pilgrimage, it could have six times that many people. I want you to just imagine driving in Harrisonburg when it has six times as many people as it does now. We think it's bad when the college students come back. Jerusalem was an exciting and a crowded place, but all that excitement also made the authorities a bit wary. Uh, There was this messianic longing, and, and Rome was looking with a bit of fear at Jerusalem during these times of high festival. They were extra watchful of the of the Jews during that time. Well, we've already looked at Zechariah and and how he prophesied that Jesus would come, and we see here that Jesus came exactly as Zechariah had prophesied. Uh, And it was was clearly a messianic statement. This was not just a, a great person entering Jerusalem. The people there clearly understood that this was something massive that God was doing. It was a Messiah who was coming. And Jesus looked the part of that Messiah. He healed, he taught with authority in ways that nobody else did there, uh, and he even raised people from the dead. And so with this kind of entry, you can imagine how concerning it was both for the Jewish authorities and for the Roman authorities at that time. But they could hardly imagine, I think, how, how little control they actually had over Jesus and how no matter how much they were trying to keep a lid on things, the way in which he would completely blow the lid off uh, in that time. So let's read here. Uh, This is Matthew 21, and I will read uh, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. I invite you you to turn your Bibles now back to the first book, the book of Genesis, chapter 46. We'll be looking at chapters 46 and 47 this morning. 
There's been such a rich tapestry of scripture and song uh, here in our time together already this morning. So many threads that could be picked up, uh, so many um, places to kind of dig deep. And it, it just reminds me that there really is one story. And there is a God who is writing this one story. And as he's writing this one story, uh, we're living in a phase of it. He has told many stories that are summaries of the one big story throughout Scripture. And Jesus himself, in his triumphal entry to Jerusalem, contains many of the components of the story that are present in the entire big story. And then the the first song that Brother Kenneth led, the third stanza, particularly in our story today from Genesis 46 and 47, where God provides for what is becoming the nation of Israel. He provides in the face of famine with the rich provision of his food. Listen to the words again of this first song we sang. On thy holy bread we feed, hunger nevermore to know. Thou suppliest all our need. Father, whither shall we go? Ne'er forsaking, here partaking, bread our souls to satisfy. Here abiding and confiding, we shall never want nor die. Israel, Egypt is faced with a famine that threatens to take out an entire generation of people. But we have a God who knew all about this long before it happened and was at work to put his man in place in Egypt to provide for his people when they faced the threat of extinction. So the title of the message in your bulletins is Joseph Provides. The title could more appropriately be called God Provides. Because God, our God, is a God of provision. He cares for his people. He provides. And isn't it interesting how he so often does it through people? And often... It's through people whom he has led on a journey, sometimes of suffering, sometimes of great sorrow, sometimes of intense hardship. He has crafted a man through whom he will provide for his people. That story is told over and over in Scripture. It's told ultimately in the coming, the incarnation of his son Jesus, in the life of his son Jesus, in his suffering, death, and resurrection, ascension, and the promise of his second coming. Those stories are told over and over in Scripture, but it's really ultimately about Jesus. Also, just uh, another reflection. It's been a life, a week of a lot of 
activities. Lots of things happening. And uh, we had a nice schedule for our elders and deacons retreat with all these things we were going to do. And to be very honest with you, we kind of got together eight, read scripture, sang, prayed, and talked. And I, I'm somebody that's kind of driven to performance, production, doing, action. And it all just kind of disappeared uh, in our retreat. And it was ended up being a time of reflection and rest. And it was, it was kind of a beautiful thing. And I'll be honest with you, it was what kind of set the table for kind of moving the service off the calendar tonight as well. And I would just remind us, and I don't think I'm alone, though I know I'm probably one of the supreme examples of busyness. It's so easy for us to get wrapped up in a sense of who we are based on how busy we are, how productive we are, how much we get accomplished, and then to feel a sense of failure sometimes when we don't get accomplished what we ought to get accomplished and get all the things done that we think we ought to get done. God cares more about who you are than what you get done. And so he gives us Sabbath. He gives us rest. And he invites us to rest. And sometimes in that rest and reflection, we encounter in fresh ways the God who provides. And I want you to note, as we start this story today, Jacob just discovered his son, whom he thought was dead, is alive. His son, whom he thought was lost, has been found. Okay, that's New Testament language. But that's what happened. And he says, the end of chapter 45, Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And so you'd think, let's pack up and we're out of here fast. Well, they are, very quickly. But Jacob stops and does something very early on here. This Jacob, who's been to Haran, the land of his father Abraham, his mother Rebekah, he's been there and God brought him back safely to the promised land. This same man, now in his latter years, is going south. He's going down to Egypt. He's going down to be reunited with his son Joseph. And I don't think he understands that this is actually God's plan to build a great nation. He's taking, uh, in some commentator's language, and I think it's a, good, it's a good phrase, he's taking his people Israel a small, fledgling nation. He's putting him into the ark of safety in Egypt. Now that seems a bit counterintuitive, but he also took, Abraham, uh, took Noah and put him in an ark on the waters. And now he puts Jacob and his family on an ark of safety in Egypt. And he cares for them, and they become a mighty nation. It's God's plan to build a great nation through whom his son would ultimately enter the world. And to do that, he must preserve his people who are facing the threat of extinction 
due to a severe famine. And God has been at work, as we have seen here earlier in the book, through extraordinarily trying times. He's been at work preparing a man to be the channel and means of his provision, of his salvation. And we're going to read this kind of in sections and begin by reading verses 1 through 4. There's a sense in which we have a complete overview of the entire story in Genesis 46, verses 1 through 4. Let's read. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. The primary theme that I would like to communicate today is that worship, worship of the true God, acknowledges the presence of God. And in that worship, it prepares us to see God's purpose, to hear God's promise reaffirmed to us, and then to be in a posture to actually receive his provision. So Jacob is on the way out. And likely he's living somewhere in Bethel or Hebron, somewhere in that section, kind of in the heart of what was the promised land. He's on his way south. And what's typically called kind of the end of the promised land before you get out of the promised land is this place called Beersheba. And Jacob realizes he's leaving the land that God has promised to him. He's on the way out. And so he stops and offers a sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice. He worships God. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the demands of life, in the pressures of life, in what we're all about that we fail to pause and worship God. What, what does it mean to worship God? There's a reason the term sacrifice is often associated or tied to praise. It's easy for us to think that when things are going really well for us and we're all excited, that's when we praise God. Rather, what we see in the Christian story in the message of the Bible, is that we owe God a sacrifice of praise even when we're sorrowing and suffering and grieving and surrounded with questions and turmoil and tumult. God is God. And this isn't so much about feeling a certain way so that when we get together, we're able to praise really extravagantly. Rather, it's coming and Acknowledging the presence of God and saying, God, we owe our lives to you. We need to hear from you. We need to order our thoughts, our perspective about life. 
We need to order our affections around you. And so worship acknowledges that God exists and that he is supreme. And we must come into his presence and wait and pause before him. We are not God. God is God, and our posture before him is one of worship. The other thing I'd like to point out, it's so easy for us to think of our lives and our world as kind of the center of the universe. And we get caught up in our successes, or we get wrapped up in our failures and sufferings. And we fail to see the big picture of what God is doing in the world. I think for Jacob, he's going to see his son. Probably the single thing on his mind, but he's aware he's leaving the promised land. He's going to Egypt. And it's when he pauses to worship that the presence of God becomes very real to him. God speaks to him, and he's reminded of God's promise. The promise of God is reaffirmed to him, and he realizes this God is going to provide for him and for his family. He is going to provide. That's one of the reasons we gather here. None of us know what our week of work looks like going out of here today. We have plans, but we don't know. We really don't. But we can trust God's providential provision. For whatever occurs, this God will provide. So God's purposes are disclosed here to Jacob. He offers this sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac, and God speaks. God came to him in a vision in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, I am God. I'm God. I'm the God of your father. I am your God. And then some of the most powerful, most touching, moving words to people whose hearts are fraught with fear. He says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I'm going to make you into a great nation there. And then this beautiful line, I myself will go with you to Egypt. You're not walking away from me. I'm going with you. I'm going along. And I will continue to do the work I did for you in Canaan. And I'm going to bring you back again. I'm not just going with you down there. I haven't forgotten the promise. I'm going to bring you back again. I'm going to bring you back into the promised land. And you are going to see your son Joseph. In fact, he's going to be there till you die. And he's the one who will close your eyes as you die. This must have been incredibly comforting words for Jacob as he is leaving the promised land as a very, very old man. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid. I will be with you. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. We can't effectively work. We can't effectively 
journey on our pilgrimage of life until we have worshipped God. The minute daily pressures and joys of life must be contextualized within God's overarching story of grace and his redemption, or we very, very quickly lose our way. Or we succumb to fear and we forget God's presence. In the past week, uh, I found out about the death of an 80-year-old, 80-plus-year-old man that I've known uh, since childhood. And I remember him staying in our home when I was just a young boy and preaching as an evangelist on Sunday nights, not just Sunday nights, throughout the week. And now he's gone. There was a, when I was just a young boy, there was a youth guy that lived across the road, and I'll, I'll never forget, he bought my dream car. And I was, you know, I was probably eight, ten years old. And it was a 1969 Dodge Charger SS, uh, 454 manual, uh, big scoop on the hood. I, I can still, I, I vivid memories of the kind of the cloud of smoke and the two black strips of rubber down the road. Just thrilled an eight, ten-year-old boy's heart. You know, and I dreamed of having a car like that. Well, I'm not recommending it to anyone, though I still would love to have a chance behind one of those someday. <laughs> 62 years old. Left his place of work driving a truck loaded with lumber. Two miles down the road he stops. And they find him lying beside his truck, dead. Family devastated. Complained of being tired, but they didn't know he had any major health issues. Life just comes hurtling in those ways. And then, just yesterday, the story of a 12-year-old, again, a man I knew whose 12-year-old son is killed by a lawnmower in Oklahoma. Spent some time last night in the emergency room in Charlottesville. And there were ambulances coming and going. There were helicopters arriving twice in the short time I was there, bringing trauma patients in. Uh, the emergency room was packed full. In fact, it was so full that down the hallways, there were cots lined up, sometimes on both sides of the hallways. There was... A, a big ambulance arrived on the outside while I was there, and it was a special transport unit for newborn babies. And I, I can't go to a place like that without just thinking about all the people whose lives are being impacted by tragedy. People's hearts wrapped with fear and terror. And you just get this palpable sense of the frailty of life. And the most human response, apart from a God who promises provision, is fear. To be afraid. God knows that. And that's the context in which he says, I am God. I will be with you. 
I will go with you. I will bring you safely to Canaan, to the promised land. I will provide for you. He did so through Joseph in this story. He's done so ultimately through his son, Jesus. Now let's hop down to the end of chapter 47. And this kind of bookends uh, this entire section of scripture. Chapter 47 in verse 27. And at the beginning of chapter 46, Jacob obviously doesn't know this. He doesn't know that he's going to get there. He doesn't know that he's going to meet his son Joseph. He's hoping. But in chapter 47, verse 27, we have these words. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. I'm going to pause there just one second. It's very interesting that Jacob lived in Egypt with his son Joseph 17 years. And if you'll recall, Joseph lived with his father Jacob in Canaan for 17 years. Joseph was born to his father, lived with him for 17 years in the promised land. He's dead as far as Jacob is concerned. But Jacob comes to Egypt and is cared for, provided for by his son Joseph for 17 years. It's like God has a sense of humor. And verse 29, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight... Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Note how... Jacob, in Egypt, is still concerned, just alert to the fact God has promised he'll be with him. God has promised he'll protect him. God has promised he'll provide for them. But he's still wondering, are the people in the plan? Will Joseph see to this? Joseph says, I will. I will provide for you. I will see to it that you are buried with your fathers, that you're not buried in Egypt. I assure you that... I'm in harmony with God's plan and will help fulfill what you understand God's purpose to be. When he settled in Egypt, God gave him Goshen, the land that was flourishing, and in that way God provided. We see that his people, his family, were fruitful. They multiplied, and they gained a possession in the land, and they gained possessions for their survival and their success while they were there. That's what God had told them would happen. And then we have the promise of Joseph to bring him back to the promised land after his death. And while this is not necessarily the story of Israel's death, it is the moment at which he surrenders to the realization God is going to provide. <clears throat> now there is the pilgrimage itself. And we don't read a lot about the pilgrimage, but 
We ourselves are on this pilgrimage we call life. And with a pilgrimage, you have a set destination. You have a goal, a place you're intending to go. And you believe it's part of God's plan for your prosperity, for your well-being. But nevertheless, they're unsettling. They're unknown in many ways. My own great-grandfather went on a pilgrimage, and it made me think of uh, this pilgrimage in reading Jacob's story. It was in the late 1800s. He, along with five other households, uh, somewhere in Indiana, packed up all their farm belongings, their, their livestock, their household goods in a train. They filled an entire train. And then they, with their children, packed into the, the boxcars. They didn't have any passenger cars. They, they went into the boxcars, and they traveled down to Mississippi. And this is the late 1800s, very different part of the world. And on Christmas Day, it was 1898, the train arrived in the little town of Gibson, Mississippi, and the town folk gawked with great amusement as six Amish families piled off the train cars with their machinery, their dairy cattle, their chickens, their household belongings, and it was a pilgrimage. It was quite the pilgrimage. Two of the men had gone down and bought 2,000 acres. And now they're bringing their household. They're looking for a better life. I don't think they had the same promise from God. They left there, again, 12 years later. And they left behind, as close as I can recall, a little cemetery there outside Gibson, Mississippi, counted 12 gravestones of young mothers and at least 12 infants who had died either in childbirth or before age two. It was a time of tragic loss. And you can go down and you can still see some of the labor of their hands. There are three, if you know Mississippi, uh, a two-story T-shaped farmhouse isn't necessarily a part of the typical architecture of the area. But there are still three. Two-story, white, T-shaped, porches on the sides, porch on the front, T-shaped farmhouses. They are from the Amish settlement that was there for only about 12 years. And I'm sure, just as I know people, that some of those women... And possibly some of those men were filled with fear as they went. I know from the, from the diaries that we read, when they moved back to Oklahoma and Indiana, they, were, they felt downtrodden, discouraged. It had been a time of tremendous loss. My, my, my great-grandfather buried two wives there and at least three children. My grandmother was born there. And so some of our pilgrimages are fraught with that type of suffering, that kind of keen disappointment. Joseph had gone through that keen disappointment, that suffering. Now his family is coming, but they go with the assurance that God will be with them, God will provide, and that God will bring them safely back. 
And there's a very interesting section here, and I'd like to read just a few verses, uh, chapter 46, verses 5 through 7. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with them, with him into Egypt, and then drop down to verses 26 and 27. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who came into Egypt, were 70. That's quite a pilgrimage. Arriving into Egypt. Uh, and, and clearly the context here implies these aren't people coming in uh, successfully, coming in as proud travelers. They're coming in as crushed, broken migrants. They're coming for survival. They're like refugees. Refugees from the famine. They're coming because they're going to die otherwise. And the remarkable you know, opening word of the very next verse notes, there was no food in all the land. No food in all the land. This is a move of desperation. But in this world of famine, God provided. Because God is a God who provides. They settle in Egypt, and again, there's uh, some very interesting flavors here to this. Joseph was not only a master administrator, he was was also a master politician. And he helped his brothers and his father explain to them very carefully how to relate to Pharaoh so that they would be accepted and not rejected. He, He gave them a very kind of politically safe way to come into Egypt. You see, shepherds were kind of a despised people. And again, uh, again, scholars disagree a little bit on this, but the majority of scholars say it's not that Egyptians didn't have sheep and didn't have shepherds. The problem was these folks were migrant shepherds. They were foreigners. They weren't Egyptians. They were Hebrews. Folks from the backwater. Egypt was civilization. And I'm not intending any political comments here at all. But these attitudes do tend to permeate societies and cultures. And Joseph says to his father and to his brothers, just be aware. Uh, You're not going to be welcomed as a great contribution to Egyptian society. Uh, They won't like you. You're dirty shepherds. You're migrants, migrant workers. And you're just coming in here because 
the place where you come from hasn't managed as well as we have. That's why you're poor and you're coming with your hands open. But God in his grace provided through Joseph's wisdom and Pharaoh, when he hears their story, very carefully prepared by Joseph, says, go to the best spot in the nation. Go to Goshen. Go to the place where the river is watering the lands and there's plenty of crops, there's plenty of grass for your sheep. And we see that Pharaoh also added an extra line. He said, by the way, if any of you need a job taking care of cattle, taking care of flocks, uh, Joseph, just see to it that they get those positions. So God is providing just in multiple ways for his people. And Jacob is received by his father. The family is received. The family is cared for. But God is not only providing now for, for Israel, he's also providing for Egypt. And in chapter 47, verses 13 through 26, there's a very, again, very interesting section. Verse 13, no food in all the land, for the famine was severe. And Jacob, um, pardon me, Joseph is interacting with the Egyptians. And first of all, he exchanges their money for grain so they can live. They run out of money. And so they bring their cattle. He takes their cattle and gives them food. They come back and said, listen, we've given you all our money. We've given you all our cattle. All we have is our land and ourselves. And he said, so we'll take your land and we'll accept your servitude to the king, to Pharaoh. And again, we could have some ethical discussions about that. But I think many of us might even be happy for the 20% tax rate that finally came out of it. One-fifth of all that they raised was to go back to Pharaoh. Joseph is providing. God has put this man in place to provide for his people, but also for Egypt, for the world. And that's, again, just a reference to the bread of life that Christ is not only for the church, but also for the world. I ask you to consider here in conclusion God is present with us today in Christ, and he has provided for us in Christ as he provided for Jacob in Joseph. Joseph provided Israel with a home. Jesus provides us with an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Joseph provided food for Israel. Jesus is the bread of life for us. Joseph saved Israel from death due to starvation. Jesus saves us from a far greater death that death brought about through sin, and he gives to us eternal life. And just as God promised to be with Israel, so God has promised in Christ to be with us, even to the end of the age. Is this someone who is worthy of your worship? When you're faced with fear and famine, will you pause to worship this God? And hear him say, I am God. Do not be afraid. I will be with you. And I will bring you safely back to the promised land.
in this coming week as we follow the story of Jesus from the upper room where he serves his disciples bread, where he washes their feet. As we follow this Jesus who goes to the garden and then to Golgotha and then to the grave, as we await and anticipate his glorious resurrection, will you pause to worship? Will you pause to hear God say, I am your God. Don't be afraid. I will be with you. And I will bring you safely to the promised land. This God who provides. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, looking around us in the world, it's easy for us to be consumed by fear, to be confronted with the famine of the human soul, the poverty of life that so many in our world are caught up in. And they know there's something, but they don't know there's someone to whom they can turn. As we pause here today to worship you, Lord, would you affirm and reaffirm in our hearts that you are God, that you are the God who provides, that you provide for us at the point of our deepest need where we are most broken, where we are dead in trespasses and sins. You provide eternal life through your son, Jesus, for all those who will place their trust and confidence in you. And as we prepare for the events of the coming week, Lord, would you open our hearts in new ways to faith in your son, Jesus, so that his grace and his eternal life might be gifted to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.